The story of Daniel, the whole book, is full of iconic stories, right? Uh, you got Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, classic. It was one of my favorites growing up. You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, which is an amazing story. Uh, you have the, the mysterious hand writing on the wall, uh, which our culture has turned into a cliche, right? You hear this, the phrase, writing, you know, seeing the writing on the wall. That's actually from the book of Daniel. So there's all kinds of crazy, uh, intriguing, deep stories in the book of Daniel, and, and we're going to hit all of those. Uh, but I had this a brilliant plan for this series. Uh, brilliant, brilliant plan for this series. And um, I, you ever notice how sometimes when you read the Bible, you can read the same thing, but if you, if you yourself as a person are in a different place, you, you see different, different things, like God shows you different things depending on where you're at. Well, um, I have had that experience here, and um, what was going to be the sermon this week is actually going to be next week, and, and um, I noticed something in the story. I noticed something in the story uh, that we usually overlook in the story of Daniel. Um, yes, Lord? <laughs> Is that Morse code? Does anybody speak that? <laughs> uh, the story of Daniel, so, you know, it's, it's like a... a, a like I said, a chock full of crazy stories book, but the, the story of Daniel actually starts off in tragedy. The first three verses, just the first three verses of this book, Daniel's life gets completely turned upside down. Now he ends up, Daniel, I mean, if, if you know anything about the Bible, you know Daniel ends up one of the most powerful prophets, um, the, the most faith-filled, his, his prayers move the world, he's influential. Daniel's just a, a powerhouse in the Bible, but he didn't start there. Daniel started off in pain. He started off in pain. And we can see it right here in, in Daniel chapter 1, starting literally in verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2 starts off <laughs> ugly. The Lord gave him, Nebuchadnezzar, the victory over Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him, permitted him, to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So the first thing we see here in, in, in the book of Daniel is that Daniel's home country, his, his home city is conquered and destroyed. King Nebuchadnezzar has come and Jerusalem has fallen. And at this time, just so you like have a, a mental picture in your mind, Daniel's like around the age of a teenager, somewhere in there. In order to really understand this, like I've, I've told you guys this before, for me, the Bible really comes alive when you try to put yourself like in the shoes of the person who's experiencing this. Imagine what it would have felt like to be Daniel at this place. I mean, just imagine hearing the news that Washington, D.C. <laughs> had fallen. The, the amount of like uncertainty and insecurity that would come with knowing that the capital city of your country was destroyed. But it was more than that for Daniel because Jerusalem wasn't just the capital city of his country. Jerusalem was home. He was there. He saw the arrows flying. He heard the screams and the cries. He, he watched the swords flash. Daniel experienced this all in the first two verses of his story. 
For Daniel, Jerusalem was home, and his home is destroyed. And even more than that, uh, likely his parents are killed, or, or he never really sees them again. Uh, I mean, he's permanently separated. So one way or another, life as Daniel knew it would never be the same after just the first two verses of the book. And then in verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought from Babylon as captives. So there's this weird like, disconnect between verse 2 and verse 3 because in verse 2 you're in Jerusalem and it's burning to the ground and then verse 3 you're in Babylon already. And the king is asking for some young men. So not only is Daniel's hometown destroyed, his nation that he loves conquered, his family probably killed, he's also taken captive by the Babylonians. Led away from his home by a hostile army. Somewhere between verse 2 and verse 3, Daniel made the long walk to Babylon. Everything he ever knew, gone. Can you imagine that? Looking back over your shoulder watching the smoke rise from your former life. Imagine that walk. You start walking and you can maybe still smell the smoke. You keep walking and eventually you can't see the city anymore. You just see the the cloud of smoke on the horizon. Then eventually as you're walking, you don't see anything. Imagine the feeling you'd have. Daniel's whole world turned upside down. The journey from Jerusalem to Babylon is about a 900-mile walk. In those days, it took about four months, four months to make a 900-mile walk. Four months worth of a journey that he never wanted to make to a destination he never wanted to visit. Pain behind him, hardship in front of him. So what I wanted to, what I feel like I'm supposed to talk about today is what happened on that journey. What happened in the long walk to Babylon? It's strangely skipped over. You flip, you teleport from Jerusalem to Babylon in the story, but it didn't teleport. He had to walk 900 miles. It took him four months. What happened? What did David experience as he processed his pain walking? What was he going through as he experienced the disorienting feeling of an unexpected tragedy? His head reeling. You want to know the biggest miracle in the book of Daniel? biggest miracle in the book of Daniel is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving the fiery furnace. The biggest miracle in the book of Daniel is not that Daniel used a lion's mane as a pillow for one night, as miraculous as that is. And it's not that, you know, some hand wrote some words on the wall. It's not that Daniel was able to interpret dreams that he wasn't even told the dream. He was still able to interpret. It's none of that. The biggest miracle in the book of Daniel is that Daniel arrives in Babylon four months after his life is upended with a fierce and stubborn faith in his God. That is the biggest miracle in the book of Daniel. His life was destroyed in the first two verses and we don't even read it. Have you ever noticed that? Like this is shocking to me that I've, Daniel, if you ask my mom, she'll tell you growing up it was Daniel and David who were my favorite biblical characters. I've read this story thousands of times and I always skip these verses. And I've missed that, oh my gosh, how did he do that? And he doesn't even stumble out the gate. We'll see next week. He doesn't stumble out the gate in his faith. He gets to Babylon, head up, shoulders back, ready to serve his God. That is the biggest miracle in the book of Daniel. So the question we have to ask, 
is how. How in the world did Daniel go through what he went through and end up four months later stronger on the other side? How did he end up closer to God when everything in his life was pulling him away from God? What happened on this four-month walk? We need to know this. We need to know this. Jesus said, uh, it's not if trouble will come in your life, it's when. You're going to experience pain. You're going to experience tragedy in your life. So we need to know what in the world Daniel did on this four-month walk. Because you're going to experience tragedy. You're going to experience pain. You're going to experience the kind of things that will kind of put you at a point of decision where you can either press into God or push away. So how can we end up like Daniel? So what I want to do is I want to preach on, <laughs> it's breaking the rules, but I want to preach on the verse that's between these two verses, it's verse between two and three. So the thing that should be there, this 900 mile walk, one step at a time, what happened to Daniel? Now I don't have time to go through the entire grieving process with you here. Many of you know that already, you know it uh, more than you want to know it, um, but grief, grief kind of comes in waves if you've experienced it before. Um, it doesn't hit you all at once, thank God, but it hits and then it subsides and then you feel okay and then you strangely feel guilty for being okay and then uh, another wave comes and it's kind of like being in an ocean of pain. Sometimes your head's above water and then other times it's really choppy and you feel like you can barely get a breath. And I imagine this is what Daniel's experiencing as he's walking. He probably cried till he didn't have tears left. But at some point in this journey, Daniel starts to pray. And we have, we, we, I can uh, safely assume this because Daniel ends up one of the, the giants of prayer in the Bible. His prayers like move stuff. When Daniel prays, like the world starts to rearrange because this dude is a giant of prayer. So at some point in this 900 mile journey, I don't know what mile marker he started, but somewhere along there he started praying. And just so you know, I don't think when he started praying, I don't think it was one of those King James prayers. You know how we do that sometimes where we can't, you know, dear Lord, thou art great. Like, no, no, no. That was not Daniel's prayer. I think Daniel prayed like a really raw, a really emotional, probably filled with some like Hebrew cuss words. I don't know what they are, but I bet they were there. You know what I'm saying? Like Daniel, like he, he didn't pray it here. He prayed it here and maybe even lower, like from the gut. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a different level of prayer when you're in that place. And I imagine he like lock horns with God, if you know what I mean. Like you have, you can't, if you really want to pray, if you don't just want to say stuff, you know, in the general direction of heaven, if you really want to pray when you're in pain, you kind of have to like engage God a little bit. And, and, and struggle with God. And I think in that struggle, some haunting questions emerge in pain. Because if, let me give you some premises here, if you believe that God is all-powerful and if you believe that God knows everything, then when tragedy strikes, you eventually get to a question. Where was God? He's walking to Babylon, back to Jerusalem. Where was God? Did you, did you not see Babylon coming, God? Where was he? Did you not hear the army? Did you not see the arrows sailing over the wall? Did you not see your people, your people, killed? Did you not see the gates get broke down? Did you not see the swords flashing? 
Your people dead, your city conquered. Where were you? Anger. It's one of the stages of grief, right? Anger. Daniel had to have gotten angry. And this is where things get uncomfortable theologically, right? Because um, if you've ever experienced grief before, you know, people are always trying to, usually they're trying to steer you away from that. Like, oh, don't get angry. God wouldn't like that. But if you read the Bible, he actually doesn't mind. Um, because you, if you're Daniel, you have a couple of choices, right? You could get mad at Babylon. That's an easy one. Babylon's the one who did the thing, right? Or Nebuchadnezzar, he was the one who made the order. Get mad at him. But if you really, really believe that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, you know that, that, that your anger can't stop there. It has to keep going up. You know, Nebuchadnezzar may be the most powerful person on earth, but he's not the most powerful being in existence. It has to keep going. The only place your anger can really land in tragedy, in pain, is in the throne room of heaven. Your anger has to go there. Daniel had to face the truth, an uncomfortable truth, that God allowed Jerusalem to fall. God allowed Jerusalem to fall. It was not that Nebuchadnezzar's God was more powerful than Israel's God and he won. It wasn't that God was off somewhere else, busy, came back and like, oh my gosh, Jerusalem, look at this. It wasn't that. It wasn't that God was running around up in heaven going, what do we do? What do we do? The Babylonians are here. It wasn't any of that. God sat on his throne in full control and allowed Jerusalem to fall. If you really believe in an all-powerful God, you believe that. And then the next question comes. It doesn't really come, it explodes. It demands to be asked. It's like a reflex. Um, one word, maybe even less of a word, more of a growl. Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's, it almost feels vomited out, you know? You can't, you can't help it, it's just, it just comes out of you. Why? Why, God? You could have moved. You could have moved. You could have stopped, you could have stepped off your throne. You could have cracked open the sky. You could have sent one angel to stop this army. You did it before. But you remained still and silent. God allowed this massive tragedy to befall Daniel. Why? That question sucks. Sucks. The reason it sucks is because you're never going to get a satisfying answer for that one. You're not. More often than not, you won't get an answer at all. You won't get an answer at all. A question you almost can't help but ask never gets an answer. It just sucks. Tweet that. But to dig more into the question. Because you can't not try to answer it, right? It's worth trying to answer even if you don't think you can get one. In order to try to answer the question why, you have to peel back the physical and ask and, and look at the spiritual, right? Because we're not really interested in the, the physical reasons why Jerusalem fell to Babylon. You can figure this out pretty easily. Babylon's more powerful than Jerusalem. They felt like taking it, they did. Like, it's not, that's, those whys don't really do anything for you. You have to peel back the physical and look at the spiritual because those are the answers you're really interested in. You really want to know, like, spiritually why that happened. 
So in order to do that, we have to switch stories for a moment. Uh, we have to go backwards in time to a story of a guy named Job. Job is the most iconic story of uh, tragedy, uh, really, I was going to say in the Bible, but in history, in history. Um, Job experiences the worst this world has to offer. And if you don't know the story, um, his, like everyone he loves dies. Um, he loses all of his wealth. Uh, he gets sick. Well, four people in his life survive, his wife and his three friends. But the way they treat him, that's actually part of his curse, not his blessing. Because <laughs> they're just horrible people. Um, and yeah, take that how you want. <laughs> but it was. Um, the important part of the story of Job is that God actually pulls the curtain back and says, here, come here. I want to show you the spiritual thing happening behind the scenes as Job is suffering in the physical. I want to show you what's happening in spiritual. And it's really important for us to know. Now, Job never knows this, but we get to know. So here's what happened. Job 1, 9 through 11. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but God, Job has good reasons to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. So what we have here, the behind the scenes view that we get is a cosmic showdown. Satan versus God. And Satan knows he can't like arm wrestle God. He can't beat God. So what Satan does is the thing that he's good at. He makes accusations. And he believes that God um, has set things up that, in a way that he's only worshipped by humans because of what God does for us. That's what Satan's saying. God is not objectively worthy of worship. He's only subjectively worthy of worship. And the subjective nature is largely dependent on our circumstances. Basically, Satan's accusing God of bribing us to love him. That's what he's saying. Take away the payoff and they'll be done with you, God. Humans love your gifts. They don't love you. This is <laughs> the best he can do to take a shot at God. The best he can do to swing at God is to say stuff like this. Take away your hedge of protection from around Job and he will be done with you. His faith in you is only worth as much as the stuff you've given him. Take away the stuff and the Faith will go with it. Whew. These are deep, like cosmic level questions, right? That Satan's bringing up. So, so what happens in this story, this is the behind the scenes, but what happens is that Job gets put on display. Exhibit A, in the courtroom of heaven, Job. Question, is God worthy to be worshipped if he takes everything away from you? Let's watch it play out. Imagine the scene in heaven. I don't know, arena-style seating for billions. Angels upon angels upon angels watching the scene unfold. Satan on one side, God on the other. Satan jeering. Angels watching in rapt attention, leaning in on the edge of their seat. What's Job going to do? What's he going to say? Is God worthy to be worshipped no matter what? Is God still good when bad things happen? All heaven wants to know. All heaven wants to know. They're holding their breath. It seems to me that this scene plays out on repeat in the lives of every human. Satan with venom in his voice 
talking to God. Daniel only worships you because you've put him in Jerusalem and you've blessed his family. Daniel won't worship you if you take that away. Destroy Jerusalem. Take him to Babylon. He'll give up on you. Same scene, different actors. Satan says the same thing about you. You know that? Your faith is only as deep as the things God has given you. If God would take them away, you'd be done with God. It says the same thing about me. So, uh, these past 11 days of my life have been some of the hardest. I feel like I need to sit down to talk to you about this. I didn't test this chair beforehand at my break. <laughs> Wednesday, February 6th, my wife, 16 weeks pregnant, um, went in for a, a routine checkup, and they said they could not find a heartbeat. 16 weeks. Stupid to do research about that, by the way. That far along in pregnancy, there is only a 0.5% chance of miscarriage. 0.5. It's a hard number to swallow. So the next day, we went to the hospital. Um, man. I don't even know if I can describe how surreal that was. We parked in the same parking deck that we parked uh, to deliver our three ch- kids. We walked down the same hallway where off of that hallway in three different rooms our kids were born. It, it's been a really ha- like, I love that hallway. Um... I've walked that hallway holding my wife's hand as she walked to try and get more dilated. (laughs) Did. Uh, Walked that hallway um, and from through the door hearing the muffled sounds of my three newborn children. I've skipped down that hallway to tell my parents the weight and length of their grandchildren. I love that hallway. I love that hallway. And we had to walk all the way down that hallway to the last room. Now I don't like that hallway as much. Um, So when we got to the room, um, after that long walk, my wife asked for an ultrasound for, uh, well, well, one reason was to be sure. Um, but there was kind of another one. And uh, before they started the process, what we really wanted, um, we didn't really care how. We just wanted them to find a heartbeat. <laughs> I was praying that the nurses at the doctor's office the day before were stupid. I don't care, God. Do whatever you can do to make it so that this isn't real anymore. Um, so they wheeled the stupid machine in and uh, I sat on an uncomfortable hospital couch <laughs> and I begged the God of the universe to move. 
Do your thing. This is your, this is your thing. Life. <laughs> Step off your throne. Crack open the sky. And uh, I really... I don't have time to go into all the details of the things I've felt in the past 11 days, but man, I made the mistake. I've been watching a lot of sermons lately, and I made the mistake of clicking on the wrong one, what the guy was talking about. If you just have enough faith, if you just have enough faith, if I could have fought him physically, I'd have, dude, I had more faith on that couch than I've ever had in my life. I absolutely believed that God could do whatever he wanted in that moment. And then I stared at that screen expectantly. And there was nothing. He said no. God said no. It's a hard no. And then, my wife endured uh, 12 hours of labor to deliver a two ounce, six inch baby boy whose heart had stopped beating a couple of days previous. She held him, and uh, we cried a lot. (laughs) And then uh, when it was time to go, I asked if I could carry him in a little basket um, down that damn hallway, (laughs) because she'd gotten to carry him for four months, and I wanted to carry him just once. And uh, I don't know, I thought it would honor him, if that makes sense. I don't know if it makes sense. So I walked down that hallway. And there I found myself in the courtroom of heaven on display, (laughs) facing an ancient demon and asked an ancient question. Your God still good, Adam? God still good when you're surrounded by evil? God still good when, when death enters the picture unexpectedly? God still good when you're carrying your baby boy down a hallway five months early? <laughs> so, Ancient demon. On the platform that God has given me, with tears in my eyes and pain in my heart, I will declare to you today that my God is still good. And then, see him. I don't even know how you hear that because like, it hurts me to think that somebody might think that's trite, like that's surface. Um, but for me, saying that sentence is uh, like, I think it means something. Um, like deep down in my soul, I think that's sentence for me to be able to hold on to God and press into God in the midst of, of pain, in the midst of tragedy. Like I think it moves something in the spiritual realm. It's not just some sentence that gets out into the air and disappears. 
There's substance to it. The words, my God is still good, do not just ring out in this room, but they ring out in heaven too. It's like a knife between Satan's ribs. I've never felt like fighting something more in my life in the past 11 days, and I just, there's nothing satisfying to swing at. I'm trying to swing at Satan, so this is the best I can do. I ask God if I could get my hands on him. I know I'd lose, I still want to fight. But there is hardly a more powerful sentence you can, you can say in your existence than my God is still good through tears. With that sentence, you push back darkness. With, with that sentence, you actually like, build God's kingdom here on this earth. It's an echo through the cosmos when you say that sentence. Because isn't, isn't the whole courtroom scene kind of a recreation of the very first temptation? If you, if you look at it. We look at Adam and Eve as though they had some unique experience. But isn't this what Satan does to all of us? He was trying to convince Eve to question God's heart, wasn't he? God's not good. God told you not to eat that. God's not good. Don't trust God's heart. That's what he was saying to her. God doesn't have your best interests at heart. Don't trust him. And isn't that the same thing that God whispers to us in our pain? Don't trust him. If your God was good, why would he allow that? Don't trust him. Don't trust God's heart. And it's worse... It's worse than just trying to get us not to believe that there is a God. He's trying to get us to question the character of our God. He's trying to get us to question God's heart. So, he hands us a fruit of doubt or a fruit of distrust. And says, eat it. And we have a choice. You'll, you'll be faced with it. Either you already have been faced with it or you are faced. You're going to be faced with it. In tragedy, you have a choice. You can eat that fruit and start to doubt your God and not trust his heart and make the same mistake you've made. Or you can rebel against Satan. You can say no when he hands you that fruit. You can say no, my God is still good. And in some small way, I believe that that sentence, that denial, like you participate in the undoing of that first sin. You start to stitch back together what has been broken from the very beginning in this universe by choosing to trust God when things are dark. And by the way, another observation I have as I'm experiencing pain acutely the temptation always is to like get out a microscope and examine everything really close. But I think a really helpful thing is to back up. Back up from your pain and, and get out a telescope. Like, especially when you're struggling with this question of whether or not to trust God's heart. When you're in, in pain, it's so hard to trust God's heart. But, but do you trust that your God is so big and so wise that God has a billion plans going on all at once and he promises, he promises to make good of every single thing that happens to you. If it takes a year, if it takes 50 years, if it takes a billion years, God says, I'm going to, to make right that wrong someday. Do you trust me? And you have to back way up, way up to be able to see it. That the good that God has planned for you in your pain, it will be eventually like a tsunami hitting a raindrop of this tragedy in your life. It, you know, we always 
philosophers argue ever over whether or not God can even the scales of, of the evil you felt in your life versus the good, but that's absurd. God's going to wash the scales away. They're going to be swept away in his goodness. For billions and billions of years, this pain that I feel acutely now will become a minor, oh, what was that, that one time? Oh, yeah. You have to back up. At some point in this four-month walk, Daniel said the sentence, in, in, in some form of the sentence, my God is still good. Instead of pushing away from God, he presses in. Instead of allowing his pain to be a wedge between him and God, he forged it into a sword and he fought evil. I mean, think about this. The entire book of Daniel follows this four-month walk. The entire book of Daniel. His spiritual journey uh, starts on this walk. he's He's a captive in a foreign country. But he ends up rising to leadership and power in in a place he really never wanted to go. Daniel actually ends up in like upper level leadership in this kingdom under four separate kings. Four separate kings. He survives three regime changes as a captive. That's unheard of, isn't it? And he influenced all of those kings towards faith in God. Some of them, uh, scholars would argue, actually like became like believers in God because of Daniel's influence. And, and the entire culture at times gets like bent and swayed towards God because of Daniel's influence on that culture. And even crazier than that, check this out. So you know the Christmas story, right? Um, where the wise men come from, from afar and they're following the star. Have you ever asked the question where the heck they came from and why they knew a star meant something? You know where they come from? Same place Daniel went. You know their title, wise men? You know what title Daniel had? He's a wise man. Daniel's mark that he left on this uh, kingdom was so deep that hundreds of years after he was gone, they, he still left this legacy um, of faith, this legacy of these prophecies and all these things that were coming so that when these wise men, hundreds of years after David or Daniel had died, they look up in the sky and they see a star and they're like, that means something. And they go back through their ancient scrolls and they're like, oh, this means something. There's like something really big happening underneath that star. We got to go find it. And because of Daniel's influence on this culture, eventually these wise men hundreds of years later find Jesus. Literally, find Jesus. (laughs) One of my favorite quotes and it's becoming more important to me. It's this one. In the darkest moments of your pain, God is planting his explosives behind enemy lines. I, I, can't, I think you'll be hard-pressed to find a, a story in the Bible that fits that description more than Daniel. Four-month walk to Babylon. God moving him like a chess piece, planting him like a holy bomb in a culture that did not know God. They're about to meet him because of what God did in Daniel's life. And it started with tragedy, it started with pain, it started with anger, it started with questions. And what Satan meant for evil, God snatched it out of his hand and used it for good. Do you realize there's purpose in your pain? Purpose in it. God can use it. But you have a choice. I think you actually kind of get to choose 
whether it will be used for good or not. I think you get that. You get the dignity of, of the choice. And um, it's not just like a choice. It's not like a multiple choice question. It's more like a fight. You have to choose whether you want to fight or not for purpose. You have to choose to fight for that sentence. My God is still good. You have to choose to give that pain to God and allow him to use it. Another uh, quote that has meant a lot to me and now is meaning something different now that I read it is uh, one from a guy named Alan Redpath. He says, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. And I would also read it this way. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible woman and crushes her. Um, <laughs> I know that God's going to use my wife. And it's <laughs> Dang, I can't look at you. Um, <laughs> she's a... Uh, He's going to transform her into like a warrior princess through this. She's already a princess now. She's going to get the warrior part. Um, and God's going to use this um, in her life to help other people with pain. Because um, she feels it on a deeper level than me. And um, if you're in pain, you, you, you might be tempted to say, so what? It still hurts. <laughs> True true. Just because God's going to use it doesn't make it hurt any less. It really doesn't. Um, and, and let me end with this. It, maybe all of this rang hollow with you. Maybe you still have a hard time with like the mental image of God sitting on his throne, aloof from your suffering, not moving when he could have. Maybe you have a hard time with that mental picture, and I will admit, so do I. But it's, it's wrong in a couple of ways. First of all, he's not sitting um, emotionless, chin up. Uh, he's, um, he's in it with us. It, his tears are falling like meteors in heaven. When, he, when we experience pain, he experiences it with us. He's not aloof. When he says no, it's because he's got something so much bigger planned that we can't see it. And maybe even the image of God being on this throne, even an emotional God, isn't the one that we should have. Maybe we need to remember that the way God worked in this universe is not to stand aloof from pain, but that his whole, the whole point was for him to enter into it with us. That's what he did in Jesus, right? God does not stay on his throne. He entered into the pain of this world as a baby himself. He experienced the same pain. He understands <laughs> on an experiential level what it's like to look at the body of his lifeless son. He knows that too. And uh, he enters into our pain with us. Jesus came to earth to die on the cross and to experience what it's like to breathe this sin-infected air so that he could ultimately conquer it. And that now we can, through what Jesus did on the cross and the forgiveness of our sins, have a, a hold on to a promise now. We have a promise that death will not win 
that Jesus rising from the dead was a sign, a flag in the ground to say, it's not going to win forever. Death is not permanent. And that sometime in the not too distant future, death will be no more. And God will end this earth and he will build a new one where this feeling will not exist anymore. So if you've experienced deep pain in your life, I want you to know God, God knows how you feel and he draws close to you in that. So, the question, either you have needed to answer it, maybe you still need to answer it, or maybe you're going to need to answer it, but in your pain, will you say, my God is still good? Will you trust God's heart in the midst of a circumstance that doesn't really make sense to you? Will you trust him? I hope you do. Um, sorry, I, I, have, I could preach for like three days on this. Um, I, hope, I hope you see what I, I felt compelled to preach this today. Um, because I wanted, I wanted to be able to preach it from here. It's, I've preached on suffering before. And I think I, myself, in this moment, would say to that guy, then, easy for you to say. And I wanted to preach it from here so you'd know it was real. Um, so you'd know it was real. All right, let's pray. Uh, worship team, would you guys come up here? I'm sorry, I forgot to invite you all up. We're going to sing one more song. And man, um, I, sometimes I feel like worships, worship songs, when we're able to sing, they're, they're like a way for us to, to express this this, uh, these declarations that God is still good from the depths of our soul uh, in, in these, these songs. So um, why don't you stand up and, and I'll pray and then we can sing together to end today. Jesus, um, I have felt your presence in a different way these past 11 days. And, it, and it's good. Not that I want it, but I am grateful for your closeness. And uh, I pray that uh, the, the people in this room, Lord, that when tragedy strikes, that they would remember that they are in the courtroom of heaven and that there is being a question asked of them, an ancient question, and that there's power in the answer that they give in that moment. And even if they have to struggle for it, even if they have to fight for it, even if they, they need a minute, even if they need a week, even if they need a year, that, that eventually they would get to the place where they would declare from the depths of their soul, well, you are still good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.